The Old Testament scripture reading is from Proverbs 14:21. Whoever despises his neighbor is a sinner, but blessed is he who is generous to the poor. The New Testament reading comes from Acts 6, 1 through 7. Now in these days, when the disciples were increasing in number, a complaint by the Hellenists arose against the Hebrews because their widows were being neglected in the daily distribution. And the twelve summoned the full number of the disciples and said, It is not right that we should give up preaching the word of God to serve tables. Therefore, brothers, pick out from among you seven men of good repute, full of the Spirit and of wisdom, whom we will appoint to this duty. But we will devote ourselves to prayer and to the ministry of the word. And what they said pleased the whole gathering. And they chose Stephen, a man full of faith and of the Holy Spirit, and Philip and Prochorus and Nicanor and Timon and Parmenas and Nicholas, a proselyte from Antioch. These they set before the apostles, and they prayed and laid their hands on them. And the word of God continued to increase, and the number of the disciples multiplied greatly in Jerusalem, and a great many of the priests became obedient to the faith. This is the word of the Lord. Jason. Well, we continue our sermon series in the book of Acts, how the spirit-fueled church goes to the ends of the earth to bring forth the kingdom of God. And so last week, uh, we talked about how this idealized church, which had been set up in the first five chapters, begins to deal with issues from within. And in our next passage here, we learn about how the church deals with favoritism and injustice from inside the walls of the church. As we talked about last week, the writer of Acts is a man named Luke who is telling an honest story about the church. It's not all sunshines and rainbows. He's careful to show an imperfect church being used for the glory of God and how it continues to be the means in which the way that the Lord brings people to himself through this imperfect body. And in this quick story in Acts 6, we find so many themes that Scripture, and particularly Luke, as the author, uh, affirms over and over and over again the importance of God's word and preaching, the importance of a gospel of word and deed, leadership in the church, and the character of that leadership, uh, the sin of favoritism and injustice, and how restoration and repair are tangibly lived out among the people of God, living in repentance to one another. So all of these are in just in seven verses. So uh, before we dive into the text today, I want us to go to the Lord in prayer and ask Him to reveal His Word to us this morning. Let's pray. God, we pray Your Word would be a double-edged sword, helping us rejoice in the work of Christ on the cross and convicted of our need of You this morning. We pray that Your Holy Spirit would guide us in hearing of Your preached Word. That you would be glorified and Your people would be mobilized to gospel ministry in Word and indeed, and not to separate the two. We ask that you would speak clearly and truly now. In Jesus' name, amen. 
Well, okay, so for the past several weeks, uh, we have seen how the church, as it's growing in Jerusalem, is beginning to see issues arise from both outside the church in persecution and inside the church that would threaten the mission of the kingdom of God. And so the apostles faced threats of arrest, fought hypocrisy from within in Ananias and Sapphira, as we studied last week. And in the space between last week's reading and this week's, uh, the apostles actually found themselves in prison and, and physically beaten for their beliefs. So what's clear about the church and the picture that Luke is painting is that as the church gains momentum and as the message of the gospel goes forth, there are no small amount of issues that come up and need to be addressed time and time again. The, the faithful church responds in a way that is to be faithful to the message of God that they have received. So as we saw last week, the hypocrisy is, is rooted out. Persecution is endured. They continue to preach the gospel despite threats to silence the message. And they continue to devote themselves to the work of the church and, as we read in Acts 2, finding favor with those outside of the church in a way that increases the reach and scope of the gospel moving forward. And so today the church is faced with another challenge, and that is the challenge of injustice from within the church, particularly in the form of neglect for the marginalized within the church community. Many see her in Acts 6 as the beginnings of what we know as the ministry of the deacons. But uh, to make this passage solely about the formal diaconate ministry would be a mistake. While there are certainly foundations for the deacon ministry that the church would come to know, uh, the title of deacon is actually not present here. The focus of this text is clearly on addressing on the issue of uh, injustice in the church and how the church faithfully responds to the mission of gospel proclamation in the face of growing concerns that the membership of the church is being affected with prejudice. So uh, this calls for us to look at three things that the text is highlighting for us today, uh, for those of you who uh, want to uh, keep notes here. Uh, the first is that the church hears the cries for justice. Uh, two, the church responds compassionately to justice. And three, the church imitates Christ in justice. So let's first begin by how the church hears this cry for justice. Verse 1 once again, shows us the church growing in discipleship. The church, uh, and we want to stress this, is not a numbers ministry, and yet faithfulness to the Great Commission demands that we consider how are we reaching non-Christians around us? And how are we reaching those around us to do what Christ has commanded every disciple to do, not just the apostles, to go and make disciples of all nations? And like all churches, once they begin to face a growing ministry, complications arise that the church needs to address. Imbalances need to be confronted. Issues that deal with favoritism need to be challenged, repented of, and brought forth to the leadership of the church. So, in other words, Scripture reminds us that the church is not free from criticism when they act unjustly or acting in such a way that creates a culture of favoritism. And the favoritism in this passage runs all across the expected lines of division that one might expect culturally. You see, every week in the synagogue, uh, funds were collected to feed the poor, but in cases of the most urgent needs of the people around them, a daily distribution was given to those who had more pressing mercy needs. 
This was right in line with the Old Testament practice in Exodus and Deuteronomy, that there are these very clear rituals that are set to care for the poor, the foreigner and the widow. And the church was being faithful to these principles, but problems arise when they are being faithful only to a select group. And the issue was rising to a level where the church leadership of the apostles needed to address this injustice. And like all unjust behavior, there are ways in which that this injustice, the injustice was, was multifaceted. Three specific ways. Uh, one, it fell upon racial lines. Here in verse 1, we see that there were two distinct groups of people in the church. The Hebrews, who were Palestinian Jews who spoke in Aramaic, and the Hellenists. Jews who spoke in Greek and belonged to the lands outside of Palestine. Uh, the Hellenist Greeks would have been seen, in other words, as, as not real Jews. Right? They, they lived outside the camp. They talked like Greeks. They were sort of given a secondary status among the Hebrew people. My loving parents joke with me all the time that I am not truly Korean, and I feel like a Hellenist you know, when they, when they call me that because I was born in America and was raised in, in just only speak English, right? Uh, so the Hellenists would have been treated by the Hebrews as sort of, oh, you're not like a real Jew, all right? You're, you're a Hellenist. You talk in Greek, right? You, you, you're not one of us. But not only that, across racial lines, it was divided across gender lines. The widows amongst the Hellenists were being neglected in the daily distribution of alms that were given to those who need, and there was a prioritization of, quote-unquote, the more deserving poor, that excluded Hellenist women within the secular status of marriage, uh, with no one in the secular status of marriage to advocate for them. All right? So they didn't have husbands who could advocate for their needs uh, in that secular culture where that was the only way that you could advocate for your needs. Uh, third, it was divided amongst uh, socioeconomic class lines. The widows were in place where the culture in the Roman Empire at large would have systematized the life of poverty around widows. And although Jewish culture had some support structures for them, uh, like we discovered in the book of Ruth in our study last year, there was little for widows, and they could not easily find work or wealth outside the realm of finding remarriage. And so the church was confronted in all three of these different ways in which favoritism and injustice was being handled, race, gender, class, not controversial issues at all in today's day, right? And the church was called out to respond to this injustice from within the life of the church. How is the church going to be different than the rest of the world? So the question is raised, how is the church going to act justly? Will they listen to the cries of those that are being mistreated? What is their posture towards this confrontation of sin from those who were seen to be outside of the camp? How will the majority Hebrew and the minority Hellenist culture learn to live together and do ministry and life together and worship the same Jesus Christ together? The very fact that Luke raises this question as something that the church needed to confront tells you about Luke's uh, emphasis and tells you about the church's posture towards injustice. You see, the apostles don't silence the concerns or dismiss them as trivial. Rather, they take them seriously, and they try to find a solution for the issue. Why? After all, what does giving to a bunch of poor widows mean in the larger picture of gospel proclamation? I mean, after all, right, uh, if we wanted to characterize uh, a totalization of the spirituality of the church, shouldn't the church just only focus on the ministry of the word and ignore anything that might hinder the message of the word going forth as some sort of, you know, um, 
we, who cares about the fact that they're hungry? They need Jesus. Right? Do we create this sort of false dichotomy? Now you have to remember uh, the stress that Luke places as our author here, both of the Gospel of Luke and the writer of Acts, uh, more than any other Gospel writer, he puts up front and center here that there is no such false dichotomy between the two. That Jesus' work and ministry dealt with the faithful proclamation of the Word of God and a faithful mercy ministry, especially to those who were outside the majority. Luke's emphasis in his Gospel on the poor, the sick, the Gentiles, the ethical commands of Jesus to reach the least of these. They, they are to give a picture of what it really means to be a disciple of Christ that's very unique from the other gospel writers. And here we see it again in Acts 6. To be a follower of Christ means more than just a belief in the right doctrines and the word being proclaimed. To be sure, that is important and it's not anything less than those things. We need a high view of theology. But right belief is insufficient without the compassion of Christ accompanied in acts of mercy, especially to towards the marginalized, the poor, those who cannot fend for themselves. The church and the apostles here, in other words, rather than rejecting the cries of those who have been disaffected from within, leans into and listens to the injustice rather than shying away from the issue and saying it has nothing to do with the life of the church. And that's what leads us to our second point here today, that the church responds compassionately to injustice. Now, in a casual reading, the apostles' answer initially seems to be an answer that seems almost dismissive. It seems that though the apostles' concern was being selfish here, oh, we, we just don't have time to do this. Uh, we're just going to pass this off to somebody else. No, actually, the apostles' response is noting that they understand the specific calling that was given to them as messengers to proclaim the gospel of Christ. And knowing that in order to fully address the concerns that the Hellenists were raising, that it would decrease in their capacity to be able to handle. In other words, they said, we are not the all-powerful, omnipotent, all-present God. Uh, and so we must be able to focus on what God has tasked us with. You see, they had been entrusted by God to continue to preach the word. And they knew in order to deal with the overwhelming task of organizing and leading this mercy ministry, they could not both proclaim the word faithfully or faithfully do the work of mercy ministry and leading and organizing this without compromising one or the other. The apostles needed to devote themselves to the ministry of the word so that the ministry of mercy could be done with the greatest impact. Both were needed to be done maximally not divided or done in a way that hindered the work of one or the other. This is why in church leadership we have these two divisions of roles of leadership in the life of the church modeling this picture that we see in Acts 6. The elders focus on the ministry of the word, myself, Scott, and Jason, and the leadership of the church. Uh, not to spread ourselves too thin and become ineffective in ministry. The diaconates are called to the work of leading the congregation to acts of mercy and justice so that they're not spread too thin. This does not mean, as some have tried to erroneously apply, that the apostles didn't do any work of ministry at all. Or, and by, by way of nature, this should not conclude that elders should not participate in any mercy ministry in the church, as has often been argued. Right? 
Um, any reading through the book of Acts, you will find contrary to the idea that the apostles regularly engaged in work of mercy, but they just weren't felt called to lead and charge that ministry. Rather, it meant that the charge of leading this mercy ministry of the diaconate fell to these seven individuals. The Christian life, the Christian individual, must be active in both. They do not get to pick and choose which ministry to participate in, but to those who are called to the office of elder or deacon, they have this responsibility to lead with an intentional focus that is undivided. Uh, this is very important because it gets to the idea that we must speak to in the American church. You see, in the development of theology in America in the 20th century, two strands came up of an emphasis on theology that were woefully inadequate on their own. Uh, in the majority culture in America, the thought was that to be a Christian meant to have a major theology set upon primarily on intellectual concerns. You know, sort of the emphasis on the first greatest commandment, to love the Lord your God with all of your heart, soul, mind, and strength. And they, they, they downplayed the ethical concerns of Scripture because they did not want to address them by the dominant Christian culture because the systems in America worked for them. So they felt no need to address social issues in the same degree as those who found uh, favoritism and disparities. So, uh, for those who emphasize this strain of theological studies, the emphasis and the theological disputes and the fights that were mostly on the realms of scriptural orthodoxy versus theological liberalism, uh, which was a deeply important battle to fight, don't get me wrong. But those fights largely ignored the ethical crises of the 20th century that the church should have addressed. So, that their fights were over the historicity of Adam, the evolution debate, the veracity of the written authors of Scripture uh, that were prominent and, 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 and most important, um, they, 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 the, the nature of Christ and the person of Christ and his work. Those were very important fights for the church. But they did it to the neglect of the ethical concerns of Scripture. However, in uh, the subdominant minority culture in America, the theology strand that developed in the 20th century became slanted to purely and totally ethical concerns. So the focus primarily on the second commandment of Scripture, uh, the second greatest commandment that Jesus gives, to, to love their neighbor as themselves. And so in such a way they did that, that they embraced a gospel that didn't need a historical Jesus, a true resurrection, or an errant view of God's word. And so the fights amongst this camp primarily led to fighting for issues that face the disenfranchised and the best ways to go about doing that. Uh, to, to meeting the needs of the marginalized in the community. So, they, they, in other words, in, in focusing on that, they dampened the theological concerns that uh, undermined the foundation of Christianity itself. Their justification was, how could a theological system be accurate if, in other words, the dominant culture was treating them in this way? Not recognizing that Scripture was commanding true things about the nature of God and that the Word of God should not have been so easily cast off uh, for in the name of moral ethical purity. So a syncretism happened in religious belief that led to a diminishing of the person of Christ, the nature of his work on the cross, and whether or not the resurrection actually occurred. The syncretism of the philosophy of the world led to rejecting large portions of Scripture as authentic, and in the face of that, tried to focus primarily on ethical practices. Acts 6 reminds both strands of American theology and its reality that's present here in the text that the church listens to injustice not by rejecting one or the other strand of theology, 
but rather by listening in such a way that reinforces both the Word of God truly and the rightful ethical practices of lives in Christians. All right, so in other words, you can't simply say, oh, you know, don't worry about the ethical stuff. Christians aren't perfect, just forgiven, right? And that sort of very trite, cliche thing that says, like, don't pursue holiness, which is not a biblical statement. Um, and it's often very used to excuse horrible ethical injustices perpetuated by the American church. We, we must instead rightfully address the horrors that such a lack of ethical focus has brought in damaging our witness, particularly in conservative theological circles. But likewise, you can't swing the other way and say, well, the church need not worry about the Bible and Scripture if people are starving, as though the teachings of Scripture are secondary to the matters of mercy. No, actually, the only way that true mercy can happen is if we understand the character of God, who He is, the message that He's given to us in His Word. So the apostles here in their wisdom from the Spirit recognize that neither the ethical portion of the gospel nor the theological importance of the gospel could be discarded. And so they could not compromise uh, the prayer and word ministry. And so for us, as, event, as individuals and as the church at large, we follow this example of the church. This has major implications for us here today. Some of us here in this room really struggle with the ethical practice of Christianity. You're, you're way more of a head Christian than a hands and heart Christian. And so you need to lean in more to the ethical teachings of Christ. Read Matthew 25. Notice Jesus' benchmark for those who are in the kingdom of heaven is in demonstrating mercy to the least of these. Your meditation needs to be on Micah 6.8. Right? Do justice, love mercy, and walk humbly before God. Uh, to be clear, we do these things not because any of these things are your salvation, but rather your rightful understanding of justification by faith alone should not lead you to lawlessness. This was Martin Luther's uh, rejection of the criticisms against the doctrine of sola fide, that somehow sola fide, or by faith alone, would lead to the abuse of the law. Rather, Luther wanted people to understand that justification by faith alone was the only way that the ethical commandments of Scripture could make sense. Right? He writes, right, our works should not should be done, not that we may be justified by them, we ought to do all things freely and joyfully for the sake of others. In other words, there is no kingdom mindset that creates a false distinction between those, you know, who cares if they receive temporary mercy as long as they don't have Jesus. That's never something that the Reformation taught. Both mercy and ministry of the word are a part of Jesus' paradigm. So if you're a head Christian, you need to lean into becoming a hands and heart Christian. Likewise, for those of you who are more focused on the ethical teachings of Christ and ignore the study of Scripture, the character of God, and His commandments, the mindset, uh, can, the erroneous mindset could come in that says, you know, as long as I'm loving my neighbor, nothing else really matters in Scripture. And we must be challenged to understand that the Bible's sole purpose is not to make you a moralist, right? this sort of really good individual with integrity, although those are important effects of the gospel and of Scripture. That is not the purpose of Scripture. The purpose of Scripture is the glory of God and His grand story of salvation for people who were once lost and are now to be found in Him. So Scripture reminds us that the foundation of all moral living comes from God Himself, and we need to emphasize that. If you're a hands and heart Christian, you need to lean in to becoming more of a head Christian. 
So how do the apostles address this disparity? Well, the wisdom of the apostles was to tell the Hellenists that the best people to solve the issue and the problem that was faced with them were the Hellenists. In other words, the way in which this injustice in the church was to be solved was to uplift those who were most affected by the struggle because they themselves knew what was best for their needs to address the matter. In other words, the dominant culture needed to listen to the subdominant culture about how they were being affected in sin. And rather, silencing their concerns because it didn't apply to the majority. After all, the Hebrew widows were taken care of. They instead leaned in such a way to give fair opportunity for the Hellenists to speak into the matters. If you look in verse 5, you will notice that the names of these seven individuals uh, that were appointed by the apostles all had Hellenist Greek names. They were all Hellenists. They were all directly connected to the issues and problems and concerns of the people and were impacted by the struggle, and they were in the position to meet the needs and do something about it. In other words, by seeking representative justice, the needs, the true needs of the individuals were affected, were, they were taken care of. But notice, notice something else here that you may have missed. It wasn't just any Hellenist that was nominated to do this work. This wasn't the apostles, you know, sort of putting a band-aid over a scar, creating tokenism in the, in the church just by throwing up any Hellenist Greek up there. No, the, these were Hellenists of what? Good reputation, full of the Holy Spirit, wise men that were chosen to lead. See, it's not enough to answer injustice by slapping a band-aid on it with mere representation. It needs to be done with integrity, with wisdom, with godly character so that the mission of God is authentically represented in a way that demonstrates care. The apostles didn't, in other words, just want the appearance of Hellenistic ministry. They wanted competency that would lead to true change. And this is what we see as the first sign of, of sort of, you know, an ethnically distinct ministry in the church. And that raises questions for us today, right? Uh, pointed questions. Is such a ministry in the church legitimate? You know, should we have gender-based ministries, right? Should we have ethnically-based ministries? Should we have sort of special interest-based ministries in the life of the church? Um, for us in our denomination, the PCA, we may ask ourselves the question of why do we have in the PCA so many targeted ministries if indeed the gospel is for all? I mean, after all, shouldn't we just all be one people of God? Why do children's ministry and the children's discipleship ministry of the PCA why have a women's ministry in the women's arm of the PCA? Why do men's retreats? Why does the PCA support the African-American initiative, the Korean-American leadership initiative in the PCA world? Aren't we unnecessarily dividing the people of God where the people of God do not need to be divided? You know, are the apostles here in this passage being reverse racist toward the Hebrews for making all Hellenists in charge of the distributions? Uh, no. Uh, what the apostles recognized is that those who were disproportionately affected by favoritism, by injustice in the church, were best to be able to understand where the system had failed them. By uplifting the Hellenists to this position of leadership, they would avoid making the same mistakes of inequality and favoritism that would destroy the unity of the church from within. You see, these targeted ministries weren't meant to divide the church. They were meant to heal the church so that they may be one, right? So what makes this different from segregation 
right? Um, you know, examples like include the Dutch Reformed Church during apartheid, right? Um, is that the Lord uh, wants us to understand the context in which this division was created. The apostles weren't doing this to stick it to the Hebrew Jews or because they had animosity or hatred towards them. Rather, the apostles appointed Hellenists to highlight the need for one another. The Hebrews needed the Hellenists. The Hellenists needed the Hebrews as the whole people of God, right, as this fulfillment of the Abrahamic covenant to be a blessing to all the nations. The new Israel, no longer tied to a national border, but rather to fill the fullness of the earth with every nation, tribe, and tongue. And in order to do that, needs needed to be met within these targeted spaces. The gospel, in other words, doesn't flatten distinctions between people groups, Okay? Uh, it is erroneous to say that everyone is on this sort of neutral playing field, right? As though Jesus came in as a financially neutral, ethnically neutral, androgynous nobody, right? But rather, how does Christ come into the incarnate world as a poor Galilean male Jew? And he, those distinctions matter. And he is resurrected in the same way, Right? And his church, therefore, is to recognize these creation distinctions as part of what it means to be the fullness of the image of God, rather than something to be ignored or flattened or not talked about. In other words, the Hellenists, therefore, would be the ones who could address the concerns in a way that could not be handled by those who could not relate to the struggle of what was occurring to them. Um, so, for example, when the church does like youth events, right, uh, we're trying to bring light that our youth has very different specific interests than, let's say, those of a 38-year-old pastor who doesn't even know how to TikTok to save his life, right? It would be tragically wrong of me, all right, to, to believe that I am the best person to be able to understand what that's like. Just like it would be tragically wrong of me to come up to the women of our church and say, you know what? I am the best person to be the face of women's ministry here at City of Hope, right? That would be a ridiculous statement, right? No, uh, we are not, in other words, in things like youth ministry, in like women's ministry. We're not trying to be sexist or ageist, right? Uh, we're saying that women's ministry is trying to address a need for women that needs to be expressed by women for women so that the church can operate more justly. Likewise, ethnic-specific ministries in the PCA are dealing in the context with the consequences of the fall, of the effects of historic systemic racism in America, inequality and marginalization, and so they're trying to deal contextually with the problems that resulted from a lack of care from the broader church as a whole. This is why I was incredibly proud of our denomination. In 2017, where we repented of sins committed by early generations of our church, like in Ezra, we all need each other, and we all need to listen to one another and need to engage with those that society believes that we should divide on. Society say you should just continue to remain divided across all these fault lines. Race, class, gender, age. And instead, the church says, no, we will be united. And the way that we do that is by listening to one another, sacrificially giving ourselves to each other, giving voices to those who cannot fend for themselves so that the church can respond in grace. Why is this so critical to our understanding of, of this passage? Because of our last point here today. Because ultimately, the church's response to justice is an imitation of Christ's salvific work for justice on our behalf. 
You see, Jesus' life, we see a pattern and model for the apostles' direction that was given to this diaconate, right, to heal the divided people of God. We see Jesus coming to earth to resolve the divide of sin that separated his people from a holy God. A chasm of sin so great that the divide seems irreconcilable between a sinful man and a God who is holy, the creation from his creator. We see the effects of this sin that it, haunt, that, that it had on the very people that Christ loved, the poor, the neglected, the hurting, prejudice, oppression that went forth from generation to generation without correction, and it corrupted the people of God, kings and rulers, leaders and prophets. It brought great calamity and distress because sin always has consequences from within. So how does Christ come to resolve the issue? The Lord, as the psalmist says in Psalm 6, 8, Jesus, like the apostles, heard the weeping of his people. He heard the prayer of the wounded. And the Father sent his Son into the world to live as fully human and fully God. He becomes one of us. To, as our catechism says, to be under the curse of the fall here on earth to take the weight of guilt of our sin, to take upon the wrath of God, to be placed upon His hands and His feet so that we might be reconciled back to God again. You see, the greatest diaconal work, the greatest mercy work that was ever done was the mercy of Christ who became man so that justice would be satisfied on the cross with His blood. And the people of God who were once far off would receive mercy. And that the church would do the same with those who was once considered their enemy. Those, those who they did not understand in the church. The church that once thought, looked at each other and said, you're irredeemable, you're unworthy to be brought in the people of God. And instead, they were united to Christ. To paraphrase the Reformed theologian John Murray, uh, when redemption on the cross was accomplished for us through the undeserved mercy of Christ, the redemption accomplished became a redemption applied to the people of God. And so all these benefits of salvation, regeneration, holiness, glorification, and being united to Christ brought us together, though we share our differences, that we would be sanctified to walk in holiness, to love others as Christ has loved us. So this is the mercy ministry of Jesus, who loves us as his church and calls his church to do the same. This is the merciful God that we worship here today. What did Jesus say to us? That we're going to do greater works than he did. That the church as his extension of his hands and his feet would preach and proclaim the word and also enact itself in the work of justice. What is the conclusion to this? Look at verse 7. Verse 7 reminds us that justice was done so that why? The word of God continued to increase again. They are not mutually exclusive categories. And the kingdom expands again. Jerusalem grows in knowing Jesus as Lord. You see, contrary to the idea that an emphasis on mercy ministry hinders the progress of the word of God, we see directly here that engagement in the work of mercy strengthens and fuels the gospel witness moving forward. Jerusalem continues to receive the growth of the kingdom of God by facing injustice in the church rather than ignoring it. Rather than dismissing it, rather than wa wa I'm sorry, washing it away, 
They confront injustice with the justice of Christ. And the mission of the church marches forward. Friends, Acts 6 reminds us of, of, of the reality of sin. The church can often be a place where it seems like injustice is allowed to reign. I, I keep on saying it every week, and it, it keeps on happening every week. Um, High-profile news of, of pastoral leadership hiding behind the office of their title to promote injustice toward people in the church, the vulnerable children this week. And it can often seem like the church has failed. We can turn on the news in the church and become so discouraged and think that this is surely must not be the way that, that God has asked his kingdom to move forward. But the encouragement that we get from Scripture here today is that when the church rightly is faithful to the word, is faithful to deed, ministry, is faithful to the work of justice in a way that isn't cheap diversity or pandering, but authentic, competent. A true, a true justice happens that the world only dreams that it could acquire. A true mercy that lives within the gospel-breathed community that shines a light not on itself, but the Jesus Christ who has done the same for all of us. So church, let us follow our great deacon, Jesus Christ. In his work of mercy. Let us, be, let us be so focused on the word of God that we listen both to the character of God and the ethical commands of God and walk with him to care for the least of these. Let's pray together.